Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations at the Firehall Arts Centre in what is now downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer at the Firehall, and my guest today is a lawyer with her own legal practice, the legal director of Pacific Legal Education and Outreach Society, where she co-founded the Artist Legal Outreach Program, an expert on the BC Societies Act, and a major push behind the recently released report, Now More Than Ever, towards a national network of legal clinics for the arts. She is an ally and an advocate, pun intended, for the arts, and apparently likes to swim. Welcome, Martha. <laughs> How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. So we're in our fourth month of true COVID awareness, and I'm very curious about what you've been up to during this time. Work, work, work work and work so uh this has probably been the busiest time for the societies since we started because we we were able to pivot very quickly into providing not only uh the summary legal advice clinics via telephone um, or uh, web-enabled platforms. We also started doing weekly webinars, free webinars for the nonprofit sector and the arts on a variety of legal topics that I was um, primarily picking up across social media and also the inquiries we were getting to the legal clinics saying, uh, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do about this, 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 and this. And I just started recruiting people to talk for an hour informally and develop resources and just keep doing that. And so for 12 weeks in a row, we did um, one or two webinars a week uh, on a variety of legal topics in an effort to support the arts and nonprofit sectors in dealing with the legal issues that were coming up during the pandemic. So before we leap into that very, very serious thing, you didn't get any kind of a pause. You had to get right onto the ground running fast to keep up. So what I'm going to ask you about is how, what actually was your connection to the arts? Did you were you somebody who wanted to be a dancer or a singer when you were a kid? Or what is it that made you decide you wanted to be a savior to the arts in many ways? Oh, God, certainly <laughs> not a savior. Um, so the story begins in London, Ontario, uh, which for those who are listening who have no idea about London, Ontario, it's about two hours south of Toronto. It's in in between Toronto and Windsor. And my father was a professor of American literature and a Marxist scholar. And my mother was um, a, uh, a, a teacher who became an art critic and writer and curator. And together with a bunch of artists, they co-founded the first artist-run centre in Canada, which was called the 2020 Gallery, which was created, founded by Greg Curnow, uh, Jack Chambers, and 
one or both my parents and a few other people um, in London, Ontario. And at the time, you can actually find an article in the old Saturday Night Magazine, which became Maclean's, uh, an article called Swinging London. Because in the 60s, London was a hotbed of contemporary Canadian art. And as a result, I was exposed to, and my parents were both big patrons of visual art, but also theater, dance, everything. And my mother being the person that she was, she invited Michael Andache to come and teach poetry to at, at the Forest City Gallery, which was the successor gallery to the 2020 um, to kids. Right. So and my first poetry class was with Michael Andache and Margaret um, Lawrence came to one of the gatherings in the house. Wow. Where do you go from um, there? <laughs> yeah. So it was a really, I was very, I was, even though I was not particularly creatively minded, I was steeped in the arts because um, I was part of this community of people, many of whom went on to become some of the major players and are st still are considered significant co um, contributors to Canadian arts. Um, Jack Chambers co-founded with Tony Urquhart the Canadian Artist Representation, CARFAC, Fond des Altis Canadiens. Right. So yeah. They were the first people to really focus on artist rights. I had no idea that, first of all, that London, uh, Ontario was ever considered a swinging city. Yes. <laughs> and also, I, I'm aware of Carfac and the founding of Carfac, but that that uh, that was the place of the first artist-run centre in Canada. That's fairly amazing. Yeah. Well, the 2020 gallery didn't last long because like many nonprofit societies, uh, volunteers get burned out and quit. And right. that's effectively what happened. Um, but it actually predated, um, what is it, the one in Toronto, A-Space, right. which is the oldest. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure there are people in Toronto who might dispute the characterization of 2020, but um, you know, there's an archive at the Art Gallery of Ontario of um, the, all the magazines. They had a magazine, 20 Cents Magazine, that um, the is in the archive uh, held by the AGO because it was such an important um, time in in contemporary Canadian art. And what brought you to the West Coast? from Ontario the weather the weather okay well, yeah I mean it's it's a bit more complicated than that um partly it was the weather partly it was that um I had been working I'd been finally called to the bar uh well when I was articling in Toronto um for the Ministry of Labor in Toronto I was started volunteering with the artist legal advice service in Toronto which is run by an organization called Artists and Lawyers for the Advancement of Creativity. Given my background, it was hardly a surprise that when I found them, I was like, oh, my people, let's do yeah. something. I had no idea you could do this work. 
um, because it never came up in law school. And while I was um, articling, oh, now I've forgotten your question, Donna. <laughs> well, basically it was, why did you come to the West Coast? But I'm enjoying well, this little... <laughs> yeah, so I was articling and um, started volunteering with Alas. And then along came, I was called to the bar in Ontario. And then along came somebody named Michael Harris, who was the um, conservative... Um, Premier um, tossed out the um, NDP Liberals at the time. You know, this is when um, the NDP were actually in government before Mr. Ray crossed over to the Liberals. Uh, and I looked west at the fact that there was an NDP government um, out west. And I, the reason I ended up looking west is because uh, Mike Harris common sensed everybody in the public service who had come in after 1993. So that was a lot of people that got pink slipped. I was one of them. Uh, and as a result, um, I uh, looked for a job here and came out to visit some friends who were actively, um, they had worked on Mike Harcourt's campaign and were uh, at the time, actually, I remember door knocking with Jim Green when he was running for office um, against Gordon Campbell. Oh, right. Of course. Yes, for the, in the mayoralty race. Yeah. yeah. And um, my friend Sudsy Clark uh, was running Jim Green's campaign. So I came out to work on that and started looking for a job. I was by that point a trade union side labor lawyer. Um, I had a, uh, a year's contract with QP and, um, and I, I saw there were opportunities here and I'd applied for a job with the BC Teachers Federation and I got it. So I moved here to be uh, a lawyer with the BC Teachers Federation. I recall uh, being, uh, I was at a packed Professional Association of Canadian Theatres conference in uh, Nova Scotia when, uh, uh, yeah, Nova Scotia when Mike Harris got in and I remember all my theatre colleagues going, oh my God, can we move to British Columbia? And of course, some of them did and some of them have since moved back to Ontario, but I'm really glad you didn't <laughs> because we need you here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... You are steeped in the arts. It's permeated yourself uh, in your work. And I'm really curious, when I started to look at some of the information on you, I came across something called the Martha Rands Cyberpunk Prize. <laughs> Do you want to tell me what that is? <laughs> yeah, this was actually before my private. It was sort of it coincided with the private practice. I had been in government. Um, I was a, in the with the Human Rights Commission for six years here before it was closed by um, the erstwhile liberals. And um, what I started to get really interested in was copyright. Uh, and I was also pregnant at the time and spent a lot of time reading. And among the people that I was reading um, were the founders of Creative Commons. And I started getting very interested in 
this whole notion of Creative Commons and the, a new licensing system and remix culture. I had a lot of artists in my in my world, and certainly as I started to advise artists in my private practice who were remix artists or playing in that sandbox, and I was very very involved uh, and engaged in what was at that time a fair, the beginning of that movement. And I was very curious too, because they were among some of the major thinkers around copyright that were not industry related. Historically, the dialogue, there's not been much dialogue between the industry and users. Mm-hmm. And I consider creators to be in the middle and this great mass of people who are not really represented by industry or users, but it became really intellectual interest. And I approached um, the people at Open Education um, about doing an event for them at the Vancouver Art Gallery where I brought together a bunch of artists to talk to educational technologists of all things um, about copyright and why, how it, imp- it impacted their practices, why it mattered to them, because a lot of technologists seem to be not really understanding artists and creators and how the process works and different things. So I sort of took it upon myself to open up space for there to be a conversation. And one of the people who was there was uh, had started something called the Peer-to-Peer University, which was one of the early examples of peer-based um, learning, which was mm-hmm. intended to democratize. These were among the main people thinking about the democratizing potential of the interwebs. These were the early days. There was a lot of rose-colored glasses. <laughs> and um, Philip, his last name I can't recall, had started this peer-to-peer university, and they had a copyright course. And I said, well, you need a prize, because they gave out prizes. And we got in this whole conversation uh, about cyberpunk, and I'm a long-standing reader of various science fictions known as cyberpunk. Um, Bruce Sterling among them, um, William Gibson, of course, locally. Um, and uh, so I had a first edition of, I can't even remember what it was. It might have been a Philip K. Dick book. And so they uh, awarded it to their first person. Yeah, yeah. 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 And she was, a, she was a cartoonist, if I recall correctly. So in um, terms of this dialogue that you had set up or stimulated, was it, was, it, was it because you felt that the education sector didn't understand when they were using the resources of the artists that there really was uh, an ownership to that? I, I think there was. I think there was a disconnect. Mm. I think there is still a disconnect between technologists writ large and their understanding of how content is created and the people themselves who make stuff. 
And there's a lot of sympathy. I mean, the educational technology space is full of people who make music, who who are totally into art and all manner, all forms. And so they were actually very receptive to what they were what, what we were saying. I just saw a gap and I continue to see a gap where we don't we when we talk about copyright, we talk to people in industry settings like film, music, etc. And then we talk to the open everything people, the people who want, I think I should just be able to use something I find on the internet because, because, because. And we weren't talking to artists. So a lot of the work starting from, you know, the that, that example of that event, I curated a, um, a, a three-day event called Art Revolution and Ownership with the New Forms Festival and W2 when it first opened at... Um, Woodwards, um, uh, on the whole notion of what does ownership mean of art? How do we deal with these issues? Then uh, we did an event with Astra Taylor. We did a few talks um, which were about creativity and the whole qu- concept of what does it mean to create stuff and, and why, do, why does copyright matter so much to artists? And and it culminated, I guess, most recently in the last year with the conversation series, which we did over last year with a lot of different artists in all disciplines, uh, really talking about their relationship to copyright, but mostly talking about their work and only maybe tangentially why copyright might matter to them. Right, right. Um, and so one of the examples is Nettie Wild gives a talk, um, and then there's a series of podcasts called Yours, Mine, and Ours that are related to that, um, and she talks about the repatriation of the footage of, uh, from her film, A Place Called Chiapas, uh, and she repatriated all the footage to Mexico. Um, That's an amazing film. Yeah, and all the footage is now in the hands of the uh, Universidad Nacional uh, de Mexico. Um, And they are making available all of the footage, the thousand pounds of footage, uh, for uh, research purposes and also conceivably for other filmmakers in Mexico to use for other films. Um, and in some cases, some of this footage is the only footage of some of the major participants in the um, Zapatista uh, rebel- revolution, rebellion slash revolution in Chiapas. And they actually re-released it um, with UNAM, the film, in, and it was the 25th anniversary. And it had never played theatrically in Mexico because at the time the film was made, it was extremely dangerous for anybody to, uh, to be, uh, be in Chiapas and to do what, uh, I mean, the Mexican journalists would have been, were at risk. There were... They, there were paramilitaries, not unlike the ones in Portland today, <laughs> roaming but, around, rounding yeah. people up and killing them, you know? 
Well, I know when uh, Nettie, well-known documentary film, very accomplished documentary filmmaker, when she was doing that at that point, everybody wondered whether she was going to come back because it was pretty risky stuff she was taking on. Yeah, and Um, she got access to Subcomandante Marcos. And and how she managed to do that. Mind you, Nettie can probably talk her way into a lot of things. She's a pretty fabulous person. she She was very fortunate. And fun fact... Um, her translator was one of my oldest friends. Uh-huh. So I arrived in Chiapas the day after the Actial massacre, not knowing that Monique was there. I'm on a bike trip and I arrive in, in, um, in the sit in the main town with San Cristobal and I'm in the Zocalo and I hear my name. It was the strangest thing. I hadn't seen this woman in five years since she went to work with Witness for Peace. And suddenly there's Monique with a babe in arms. And that was here. Sorry, I was going to say, and you weren't concerned about biking through Mexico at that point? You weren't? No, this was after the worst of it. Although I have to say that walking around San Cristobal de las Casas, I mean, it was it was a police state, you know, there was police on every corner. Um, It was considered relatively safe. Uh, Because of this coincidental meeting, I actually ended up blowing off the bike trip and just hanging out with Monique because I met the, the priest, the bishop that was in the town. I met and and I and I her partner was a photographer who was actively engaged in documenting what was happening. Meant to be. Wow. These things are meant yeah. to be. Um, I'm just going to. You've been very involved, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in the now more than ever towards the National Network of Legal Clinics for the Arts report. I'm just going to read something about it, which will take us into our next conversations. I'm sure this is in the introduction. It says, "What about COVID-19?" Cancellations and closures due to COVID-19 are having a catastrophic impact on the Canadian arts sector, which is worsening artists' already precarious living conditions and is increasing the urgency of their legal needs. While much of the evidence is anecdotal at this point, it can be said that contracts, employment, commercial rent relief, and human rights are among the concerns reportedly most, reported most frequently. And the report goes on to our recommendations take into account the legal issues artists and arts organizations are reporting due to the current pandemic. So can you just explain to me a bit how this report came together and then we'll get into talking a bit about the issues that we are now as artists and creators and uh, makers facing as well as what institutions and organizations are facing? Sure. So Not as fun um, as Mexico though. <laughs> so we, we were really, um, I, we, the Pacific Legal Education and Outreach Society undertook a project to develop um, a legal compliance tool. And this was really developed for arts administrators, for people who were on the administrative side of the, of the arts and the nonprofit sector more generally. And we applied to the uh, Digital Strategy Fund of the Canada Council for the Arts for funding to make it into a digital platform. It existed in a a survey monkey form 
and we wanted to make it into something that was real time, right? Uh, so a web enabled app or something. And we working with um, Made in BC, uh, who were our colleagues on this particular grant, um, we were very lucky and found ourselves getting a grant from the Digital Strategy Fund. And ironically, the on the jury were several of the people who I knew from the Creative Commons side of the work that I used to do. So it was a funny moment when I saw who had been on that jury. Um, in any event, as a result, I said to, I wrote a letter to Simon Bro and Carolyn Warren, the director and, and deputy, respectively at the Canada Council and said, to say, well, it's great, thank you, we're gonna create a tool, but the tool needs a home. And there would be, uh, they had just announced in the innovation side of government, these things called innovation legal clinics. And I thought, well, if you can create innovation legal clinics, you can create legal clinics for creators who are as innovative as it comes. So I, I attended the, town hall that um, many people did when uh, Simon and Carolyn were here and I put it to them directly in the in the in the meeting and then and they both said please follow up so I sent this letter and within a few days of getting the letter I got contacted and said would you be available for a conversation in August um, actually, it was August the 9th of um, last year that I met with Carolyn Warren and the other uh, two senior deputies at the Canada Council. And she was very, they were very excited. Two days later, I'm on my way in the airport uh, in Ottawa, on my way back home, uh, funnily enough, with Dave DeVoe. <laughs> uh, from ZZ Theater and because we ran into each other and I'm looking at my phone and there's an invitation to apply for an exceptional grant which is an off-cycle grant to be reviewed by the directors only uh, to seek funding to develop a national network of legal clinics for the arts and you could have I was floored I was just like I've been talking about this for 10 years. I've been working many, 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 many hours trying to get, improve the position of um, getting legal services to the arts and arts organizations. And I was like, we can do something here. So uh, in October, we got a grant from the Canada Council and started working on a national needs assessment which included an online survey in February of 2020. We had focus groups. We also had meetings of all the lawyers from the six legal clinics across the country, as well as um, a few lawyers who were interested in starting clinics in Calgary and Winnipeg, um, respectively. And we set about trying to see what we could do and the report is the Coleman is the reflection of all of what we learned doing the research, the, the, the retreat, the focus groups and the online survey of uh, what are the legal needs of the arts and culture sector in 2020. 
And this all happened before COVID. And so now with COVID, has everything just been exaggerated? Has, uh, has everything, has anything changed from what came out of the recommendations in that report? Well, we kept the survey open so that people could express, you know, if they found the survey after, after we were in the process of analyzing the results so that we could see what questions people had, if any. Um, and um, what we know is more what, what we did at PLEO as a consequence of the, the lockdown is we started offering webinars like every week. I, I, the need was great. We knew the need was, I knew the need was there. I knew that people needed an outlet for it. And I also knew that it was an opportunity for us to prove that there was a need because I and Bernard Sauvé had met with the Minister of Arts last fall uh, and were told that this was the first time that the minister had ever been made aware that legal issues were at a concern for, uh, for the sector. And she actually went so far as to suggest that perhaps it wasn't a need which was also the view, incidentally, of um, Gillian Wood, uh, who was the pre her former the executive director, yeah, former director executive director of the yeah. BC Arts Council, which might explain why we've never gotten BC Arts Council funding. Um, and what I said to the minister was, well, they aren't going to ask for something they know they're not going to get. <laughs> After 16 years of an austerity government, surely you don't expect people to start expecting something they've never had like that just doesn't happen and you know I, I think they're interested in hearing more from us and certainly there are members of the legislature that are like Bob Deef and and Spencer but you know the reality is is that legal issues are not really seen because it's often behind closed doors so we had an amazing opportunity to show that there's a need because what did we have? We had 600 people register for a webinar on doing a virtual AGM. That ought to tell you something right there. You know, well, I think that's, have, that, that's you know, something that, um, you know, the perception of when you mentioned something that you had no idea when, when you were um, uh, articling or moving into becoming a lawyer, that there was these opportunities or this, this need out there. And it's like, I think most people think of entertainment lawyers perhaps in terms of Hollywood and that's all they consider yeah. as opposed to the rights of an individual artist or the rights of an organization or non-for-profit society law. So we're very behind underneath the, I was going to say buried underneath the pillow or something, but it's just not below the radar. Below the radar. Yeah. And I think the other thing is, is that the reality is, is that people's experience of the law is often negative, right? So if you've had a family law matter, anybody who's ever been through a divorce that you know, you know the toll that it takes. And lawyers are not highly thought of as a result. And they're often thought of as expensive, even though there's a truly a small army of sole practitioners and small firms that are very reasonable and very accessible, the perception of the law is dominated by the big firms. 
And the way the profession operates is at a remove from the rest of us. So as a consequence, there's a lot of reticence around even going the route of contacting a lawyer. So you're dealing with the, that cultural issue. And then you're dealing with the reality, which is that we've been doing this, PLEO, operating the Artist Legal Outreach for 15 years without any funding from any, any other entity than the city of Vancouver to keep the doors open. So and your work is pro bono? Basically, yeah. All the people that you work with, pro bono. Yeah. Now, now you know, the work that we're doing on the tool, other, other project grants that we've been able to get in the last two years, you know, I'm paid. But um, when we talk about the Artist Legal Outreach Legal Clinic, all the lawyers are volunteers, the law students are volunteers. I provide legal supervision, meaning that I make sure that we're doing what the Law Society insurer requires. And that's for two hours a month. That's it. That's, that's it. the only amount, you know. And so when what, what we found when we did the needs assessment, of course, is, and it's the same across the country, the Artist Legal Advice Service in Toronto is, is run by a group of lawyers and artists in Toronto. And it's all volunteer lawyers, all volunteer law students, and really active people that are willing to put in some time to educate. Nobody's getting paid. Uh, they've gotten a few small project grants to do workshops, but that's about it. And so what we found when and when you read the report is that people are like, I had no idea you existed, you know, because how would they know? We're well, not. The minister's know. reaction as well. How would she know, you know, really, unless she was briefed on it or whatever, but uh, not, not just suggesting that there's so many people that would not know. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily have, I certainly was aware of what you were doing through the Alliance and all the workshops we were doing. But when you say to, when I hear that the webinar about having a virtual AGM drew 600 people, I'm wondering what other webinars you've done and what the response has been. Cause I, I know all of this stuff is really helping people through sort through a lot. So, um, Perhaps you can talk a bit about what some of the other webinars are, are, and maybe give me some examples of some of the things, issues that have come up because of what's going on. Well, with COVID. so one of the first issues that we identified, funnily enough, was uh, people starting funds for pandemic relief. So, in other words, um, there were a number of groups that were online saying, I'm going to start raising money so I can give people money, especially in the arts that I lost my gig group. Uh, you know, we need money, money, money. It's true. People need money. The, the, the rug's been pulled out from under them. They, they have no safety net, actors, dancers, musicians. And you're like, okay, so, well, guess what? If you're a registered charity, you can't just start giving out money unless it's specifically within your charitable purposes to do that. So what I noticed was there were a number of charities that were starting to actively do this. And I was like, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. You've got to be careful about how you, how you do it. You need to work with a nonprofit, blah, blah, blah. And in fact, some funders were actively seeking out organizations who could deliver this funding 
uh, to individuals. So um, I uh, enlisted Anders Urim, who's a lawyer in private practice who works exclusively with nonprofits, uh, to do a uh, one-hour webinar on pandemic relief. And I'd also been um, contacted by um, one of the groups, uh, uh, Black and BC, um, doing, creating a mutual aid group who had concerns about what they were doing. And so thought, well, this is a perfect opportunity to actually just do something rather than them talking to me individually. Let's see if we can't get a webinar. So we did the webinar. There were, um, I think, 53 on the on the actual um, call, and then it's been we made available. Although it's all recorded for posterity, uh, and we created an info sheet, so the content is repeated in a in a static form for people who read. Um, <laughs> and we also have an Ask a Law Student service, which we told people if they still had questions, we although we can only give legal information, we can't give legal advice. We could we would do our best to try and send people to the right place to find the answers. And we were able to do that because we got a grant from the city of Vancouver, uh, social policy, social planning people um, uh, on a convening the nonprofit sector in the city of Vancouver, about what their legal needs are. And we were able to use some of that money to just start offering stuff. And it gave us a great opportunity to see what people needed. And I was monitoring the ED, women's ED group. I was monitoring um, Vantage Point and I were in regular contact. Uh, I was monitoring, I lost my gig. Uh, there were a number of other social media sites, the arts administrators um, group on Facebook to see what issues were coming up. Um, and I'd asked people like Kenji Maeda, GVPTA to tell me what issues were coming up for people. And that was when we started, what I knew would be a big issue was commercial tenancy issues <laughs> and the lack of um, legal advice in this space. So I, uh, and that was really helpful because we not only had Grant Haddock, who's a lawyer in private practice who does nothing but housing law, um, he actually provided us with a short form uh, rent deferral agreement that people could download from the website, both for commercial purposes, because you need one of those in order to get your landlord to apply for the circa. Um, you need to have a rent deferral agreement in place and uh, a rent deferral for residential tenancy folks, because notwithstanding that we're not providing any kind of residential tenancy advice, that's for the tenants resource center to do. Um, we wanted people to at least have a document that they could refer to. Um, so we did the two of those. Um, one was more general um, on leases and reading your lease because a lot of people have just been provided a 30 page boilerplate from like, you know, whatever big firm you're talking about. And 90% of people don't read them, right? They read the first two pages, which is the basic terms. And that's as far as they go. So they have no idea what, what happens. Signed. When, <laughs> yeah, they don't know what happens when you don't pay your rent. They don't know what a writ of possession is. They don't know what a forfeiture action looks like. Fortunately, 
the, the courts were closed at the time. So it wasn't, and the only matters that were being heard were emergent, urgent matters. And they had decided that getting orders of possession or forfeiture under um, commercial tenancy were not priorities. So effectively that meant that, you know, every, that certainly those people who could, could sigh a bit of a sigh of relief. Unfortunately, the reality is that for a number of businesses, also people who sell art, like stores uh, and galleries that are not sort of not artist-run spaces, they um, were going under because they couldn't make, without having an income stream, they were already in debt and it wasn't worth it. And they knew they were going to have a problem because there's not insignificant number of landlords in the city that were not going to apply for circa. So we were getting inquiries to the clinic from individual artists who not only were trying to get their work out of these places and having trouble with it, but their money, right? right? Because they were owed money. And in one case, they were owed money and basically the owner of the business said, well, come and get your work. I'm not giving you your money. So and have there been galleries? Have there been several galleries that have gone down? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, and we don't know the impact yet because with it's only with reopening that we can see who's not open, right? And, and we know some restaurants are, have gone under. We know that there are people who retired, right? I mean, you put 30 years in, really, like, now's a good time to get out because it's going to be, you know, there was a piece on global news, I think, or I think it was global or CTV. And um, down on Denman Street, uh, there's a, a, a restaurant called Espana. You may have visited it because your son lives or used to Very live. Very close, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there are actually four restaurants in that building and a, a store at the corner of Pendrell and Denman. And um, the owner refuses to um, apply for the rent relief. And there's a very, all of them were talking about the business owners, including Ed um, Perro, who's the owner of Hispania saying, I don't know what we're going to do when the, when the rent comes due. He, I mean, they've deferred it. There's a $30,000 debt just waiting for them. And right now, you know, it's 50% capacity. What are you going to do with that? If you know anything about the margins in the restaurant business, they're really thin. Well, they're even thinner than in the arts, actually, in the performing arts. I mean, we're all sitting with our theaters closed. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't believe that people understand how impactful that is because box office, in, for, certainly in the fire halls case, is probably about 40% of our budget. So we're lucky that we're subsidized, but um, through grants, uh, I, luck, I'm not sure if it's luck or, or, or what, but, but uh, using that 40% makes it really hard for us to go forward with anything and the limitations on how, how many of the public assembly piece is a whole other matter. Um, I'm curious about um, the, we've moved into the digital world here um, now in terms of how we're showing um, our the art that we do, whether it be um, visual arts or whether it's uh, 
streaming uh, reading of a play or um, uh, streaming a live dance performance. And with that, there comes, of course, a lot of discussion around who has the rights to use what. Has that come up much in terms of this discussions, the discussions that you're having? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, certainly when you're trying to pivot from being in a performance venue where you have a SOCAN license that covers all the music uh, to being having to get the permission yourself, it's a completely different ball of wax. Um, you know, in a perfect world, we'd get an agreement from the music industry to some kind of a license given the pandemic for theaters, for theater performances. But that requires advocacy. And the reality is, is that it it may be, I'm sure there's some advocacy going on, but theaters is still a really small player in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, taking on the music industry is not an easy, easy feat, even though we should all be working collaboratively and certainly in theater you do. Um, I hear all the time from clients in theater and particularly in, in musical theater, how difficult it is to actually even clear the rights when you have um, the money to do so. You know, it's, it's a big part of a producer's job in certain contexts. So to have a small company like ZZ Theatre, for example, have to um, turn around, and of course they want to do their show uh, online. There's ways of doing it. They would love to do it. But how do you do it if you have music that you know is a major artist and you're going to have a devil of a time paying a license fee? Um, And it's on you to do it because there's no blanket license. So... I think that we're definitely hearing that that's an issue. And, you know, I have to say to people, look, if you don't have the rights, it's, it's risky because if it's found, right, if you were to post something online and it's picked up by an algorithm, then the, the audio track will be down before you could say, good morning, America. You know, it's very, very quick. So then the pieces without music, which is its own thing and and on top of that you know you could find yourself as a company here did not recently this is an old story of a dance company that choreographed Arvo Parts work without getting his permission and he never gives permission and they so got yeah <laughs> they had to change the whole thing right and and I'm sure Donna you know I mean, you've had a show in your space given where that has songs of a particular artist. And you know, I am sure that they did not have the rights to that, to that music. They went ahead anyway, and they've gotten away with it, but it's well, risky. Yeah. With the, I mean, we've done a number of, uh, of musicals in terms of the, the one I think you might be talking about is the Leonard Cohen. Is that the one you're talking about? We actually went, that was a really interesting story because we pursued uh, Cohen's, Cohen was still alive at that point. And um, we pursued his manager in uh, Los Angeles, uh, tracked him down. We did everything we could. We went through Sony and Sony was saying one thing. And then finally his manager said, 
and who knows, uh, uh, he said, basically, well, just keep doing it the way you're doing it, which was basically paying a SOCAN royalty on, on the music as opposed to going for the grand rights to do the full blown musical version. So yeah, it's very tricky. And for companies that wanna do streaming of musical theater, uh, unless it's original music and the creator is sitting right next to you and you're negotiating with that person, you can't, you just can't do it. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, it's tough because the reality is like in the situation that Leonard Cohen was in, right. The only, the re only reason that, I mean, you know, in his heart of hearts, I would be willing to bet you that he doesn't want to be, he was not acquisitive, you know, but the reality of the situation was that he was, stole, he had was stolen from, right? His, his, his work was still, so much money was ripped off that. And he didn't own most of his songs he, yeah. he, anymore. He really didn't. That was part of the problem so, as well. Yeah. So it was like, I mean, he was touring in part to make up for the fact that he found himself at, you know, 60 or 70, I think it was, without much to show for it. And, um, and you know, that makes people make weird decisions, decisions that might go against their own uh, generosity, you know, he's a practicing Buddhist, for goodness sake. I mean, he would give everything away, I'm sure. Well, and Tracy, Tracy Power, who was uh, the, a real push behind that, which this is an interesting story, too. That show didn't happen. I was looking for a Cohen show because I love Cohen's music. Half an hour later, and I just talked to a colleague about it, and he said, create your own. So I was about to do that, and half an hour later, I got an email from Tracy saying, oh, I'm working on a Cohen piece. Would you be interested? So it's kind of one of those things. It's like you're uh, running into your friend in Mexico. These things happen for a reason, and you go, how did that why did that, where did that come yeah. from? Yeah. Uh, the other thing I think that's happening, of course, is that people might want to do a smaller performance with 50 people and then stream uh, the play or the dance piece. And again, the same thing comes up, particularly dance, if you're using uh, music that's not originally composed uh, or music of the, the past, um, you you have to secure those rights and in theater it's you have to have the playwright's permission to do this so if you're doing original pieces a lot easier than if you're doing um the sound of music or uh, yeah. a very traditional oh, yeah. play oh, yeah. yeah yeah and you know it's it's you know this is where you get into the complexity of copyright and the problem that and i mean you know we're all very sensitive to the 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 idea that you know the copyright term is too long it's an onerous process why should we have to get permission it stops people from doing things all of which is true and it's the only mechanism we have currently legally to remunerate artists all of whom are lumped into this category together so it doesn't matter if you're a visual artist or in theater or you're Britney Spears, you're all the same. And that creates some friction too, because you do sort of wonder why um, an artist like Britney Spears would necessarily need to be so attached to every dime, you know? 
Whereas <laughs> the guys who are getting a dime for every stream uh, that you don't know a lot about, um, I'm blanking on a name. It's been so long since I've seen any live music. Um, Frazy Ford um, or Rose Cousins or any, or Vatahilly, you know, you really want them to get the, they need every dime in order to survive. And so it's really tough when you're in that sort of zone of open everything, lock it down, Surely there has to be another way, which is from where I'm sitting, like all of this talk about transforming the models and pivoting and all that stuff coming from the Canada Council. I'm like, you know, what I would like to see is I'd like to see like the advocacy around, okay, we need another license from SOCAN or something that would enable this to happen. Maybe it's like, Packed agreements where you've got the various levels of theater, you've got the CTA and it, and its application and the size of this theater is different from that theater, and and that might be a way to do it, so that you could say, okay, we're going to extend the license to the for this purpose for this period, even if you did it just for let's say the, the, a year. Okay, because let's say six months to be optimistic about the pandemic. Why couldn't they just do that? Why couldn't they say, on behalf of publishers, we're going to extend the license to this air to, to theaters in this category? God knows the CTA has already done all the categorizations for them, right? That we could do it this way. That's and then and I mean. Why aren't people, uh, but that's for PAC to advocate and for. I've taken notes on that and I'm going to bring it up because actually what happened, uh, it's an interesting thing because for Canadian Actors Equity and ACTRA have come up with a mutual agreement that, that to do with actors who are involved in streaming and, and, and and that has come up and it's, it's the COVID agreement is what it's called. But I think the whole, this whole idea of music, Rights as well. It makes perfect well, sense. Music is the hardest. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, sometimes everybody com complains a bit about equity or whatever. Go on, whatever. Complain away. The reality is, is that they have a lot of different vehicles through which they work with independent producers, independent companies, equity co-ops. There's lots of ways of doing things. Music, not so much. And that's where I think we could use the help actually. I'm going to switch us over where we've got lots to talk about and time is, I know you're going swimming, so I don't want to keep you too long. Um, I'm, you, you used a term yesterday when we were talking that I thought was really interesting, uh, the mediation of the screen. And uh, we were talking briefly about um, how one, how we deal with things like screen bullying or public shaming or, uh, and it was just an interesting discussion that we were having about how one-sided social media can be. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if any of that is coming up in, in people. Are you, are you getting calls from people going, you know, I did this and then all of a sudden I got all these calls about it or emails about it or whatever, because my, my intention was this, but it was interpreted as that. Yeah. 
So, I mean, this is the other big issue in the, in the sector. And, and this, I would say, actually is in workplaces generally. But um, I think that, uh, and this is not COVID related. Um, I've seen a whole slew of complaints about respectful workplaces. Um, and I would say that in the broadest possible sense that um, everything from you know, a small organization where a disgruntled employee called WorkSafe and they did an investigation um, and it was really an interpersonal conflict. The, the, the WorkSafe found no, no issue. Um, and it, but interpersonal conflicts are now flashpoints to engage either with the state through WorkSafe or the Human Rights Code uh, through, through by making a complaint or, or you're supposed to have a policy, Donna. Everybody's supposed to have a policy. So you therefore invoke your policy and there's no, but there's no resources in which people can function to be able to implement the policy. So, and that, you know, being at the Human Rights Co uh, Commission for six years taught me a lot as a mediator about what brings people into conflict and, and all that. And, and how to help people to extricate themselves. But a big part of that is the ability to hear each other and to create a space that allows that to happen. And we, we haven't taught people how to do that. We haven't, uh, and when I talk about the mediation of the screen, most people don't know how to read, or they seem to have trouble reading cues, social cues, physical cues, uh, body language, or they may be face-to-face -face in a theater and they may overstate, if you will, uh, the conduct becomes magnified because of the power imbalance between the uh, older individual and the younger one or the, the person in a senior leadership position and the younger person. Or the really hot director who's really got this reputation and you don't want to offend them sure. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of reputational interests in the, in the arts, right? And that actually, you know, up until the, the, this last year, I would say that all, uh, when I saw a complaint or a concern raised, most of them never went anywhere because of rep reputational interest. And there was one situation that became very public on Facebook in the film community, um, the this person complained about a joke and the pylon was unreal. Like her reputation was just destroyed. And, um, you know, 600, 700 comments. Uh, and, you know, we can argue about whether there were not there were other ways to deal with the situation but you do have to wonder you know when there's cases of people who are in you know positions of authority go, going out with students getting drunk like i'm sorry but like i, I yes they're adults 19 20 21 22 whatever 
and you're 50 and you're the grown up in the room. Like, please don't go get your students hammered and then think, and you're disinhibited, they're disinhibited. It's not a safe space, it's inappropriate. And it is a continuation of the workspace or the educational space because when a teacher says to students, why don't we go for a drink? What student is gonna say, oh no, I can't. They go along because they're trying to keep a good relationship. And all that relational stuff is very reputational stuff is really, really important. I think, especially in the arts. So, um, but now what I'm seeing is people saying, no, I'm going to make a formal complaint and writing to the directors and, and then writing to the city, including the funders in these letters. And I'm, I applaud them for not tolerating the behavior. On the other hand, what I have said to, in the, in the case of the city of Vancouver, we need to help these groups because many of the groups that I see are under $100,000 budgets, maybe a quarter of a million at tops. This is not the arts club. The arts club can hire people, they can hire investigators. I mean, certainly before the pandemic, they could. They have obviously carrying a fair bit of real estate on their books. I don't know how much they can afford. But seriously, folks, like this is a, this is this is a problem, you know, and and think of the push festival, right? Like, well, and the perception oh. of, of, of uh, a not for profit, small budget society having a lot of power or ability to respond is is um, is often uh, out there and you go, okay, well, how, how does one do that? And I think you've pointed it out and very clearly is that it, even if you do have a human rights or a harm reduction policy for your staff, how do you implement that? And, and who has, who really generally has the time to do it, to make sure that everybody, I mean, who has a work safety officer that just does that? No and I think, yeah, I think a lot of the, the issues that I have with work safe is, is that they treat all workplaces the same. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really work in a context where there's one staff person, maybe a couple of part-time contractors and everybody else is volunteers. It's, it's a very different beast from being in working at the hospital, you know, or, or wherever. And I think there hasn't been enough attention paid to getting training in, but also where are the resources going to come from for you to take the training? You know, this is not a three-hour workshop. This is probably three days, and it's a deep dive. It's like, and then you start looking for people to do that, say, for your board. Well, you know, Elevate Inclusion is booking into 2021. Um I'm sure it's the same with most of the folks that I know of in this space. They're very busy right now and there's not nearly enough of them. And the reality is, is, you know, this, I saw a statistic yesterday that the diversity training business is an $8 billion business. So, you know, there's a lot of training needed. There's a lot of resource and there's very few resources and, and, and a lot of people will say, and, and that's where the resources should go. And I agree. 
I, I wish we could t- take this time collectively and say, this is our opportunity to take a time out and do some of the work that we didn't get around to before because we were too busy, so busy, trying to get our seasons up, our work done. And, um, and I know that's easy, easy for me to say and much harder to actually do. Well, and I think I think there's I mean I think there is quite a bit of that work going on on a on a smaller scale. But I think your point about the lack of uh, or the inability to find the right match if you're going to do um, uh, inclusion training or um, uh, anti-racism training or even harm reduction training to find the right consultants um, that actually understand the structure of most not-for-profit organizations as well as their intentions um, or what their mandates are. So it's really, I, I guess the disconnect is that all of the arts organizations are getting funding to do a certain kind of thing. They have a mandate and a mission statement. Some of that needs to be adjusted, but also how, how, how do they um, find the people that they need if they did have the resources? I mean, I guess that's a, I don't think you have an answer to that really, but. <laughs> oh, oh, I do. Actually, I do. You do? Oh, good. <laughs> you know, the reality is, is that if I had a magic wand, you know, I would be, as much as I'm in favor of digital literacy, but if you took all the money that, that's been put into digital literacy, I mean, it's not a $500,000, you know, the half a million dollars that the Canada Council and Canadian Heritage gave for the creation of the Respectful Workplaces and the Arts materials is a drop in the bucket. You know, if, if, if the federal government, seriously, if the federal government can come up with $1.4 million, admittedly over four years, for a federal project to in BC to educate people about sexual harassment only and, and include legal advice, paid lawyers getting giving legal advice to complainants of sexual harassment. If they can come up with that kind of dough in BC, imagine what we're talking about across the country. If they were serious, if we as a community were serious about what it is going to take to do this, it would be a 10 to $20 million allocation, not a half a million dollar allocation. And I think, and again, you know, it was interesting, like talking to the people at Respectful Workplaces in the Arts, Gregoire, had no idea that there were these clinics starting up about sexual harassment across the country, all funded by the feds, but the right hand was not talking to the left hand. And, and then you get the province in this going, they're responsible for legal services, in fact. It's in the provincial mandate. So I'm like, where's the law foundation on this? Where's the notaries? Why aren't we having RFPs? Why don't we see this stuff? Well, this is interesting because the whole funding model, I mean, there's certainly an expectation and there has been for some time and and it's long overdue, I would say, that all organizations should be looking at inclusion, should be looking at how how we bring new voices into the theater or the dance world or whatever world. And, And there is this expectation, but there hasn't actually been any additional funding 
put forward to supplement to supplement our existing budgets to do this. So it seems to me that that's the step that we need to be obviously advocating for because you can't, uh, I mean, you can turn small ships quickly, but you can't turn big ships quickly and you need time and you need resources to do that. And you need HR people on site who know what they're doing. Um, Well, this is the interesting thing about the why not um, theater project, the one that Kelly Nestruck wrote about in the Globe last week. Yes. I think, I mean, you know, instead of worrying about pivoting to digital, how about we spend the money on transforming the, if you want to transform organizational models, let, there's a good way to do it. Instead of using the money to do whatever, use the money to create mentorships, meaningful men, member, mentorships, so that young, uh, in that case, uh, women identifying of color could access um, a program that would actually in sound design, in, in stage, in set decoration, in stage management. I mean, what a great initiative. Times 100, right? And you're like, well, then, then nobody can make the arguments. If this is why, like, Valerie Singh Turner is a visionary, right? Culturebrew.art is, it's like, you cannot say there aren't people to hire. They are here. Here they are. Stop saying that. Stop going to your friends. But- well, and I think the why not model is really an interesting one because when many, many years ago, the fire hall started uh, our our work in theater. One of the prob one of the projects that we had for five years, uh, we got funding uh, to actually do a mentorship program that involved not just learning how to up your acting skills, because um, most of these grads were people that had already gone to college. They were it was for diverse voices and for Indigenous people. Um, and what they had to do was not only explore their creative side, they also had to learn something about marketing. They had to learn something about technical work. They had to learn all these various, it was an inclusive kind of package. And what Why Not is doing is actually mentoring people to be also in other roles other than performers. And that seems to be a bit of a gap that we have. I I agree Valerie Singh Turner's work in terms of what she's done in terms of identifying creative um, actors and directors and primarily um, primarily creative people um, is very has been very valuable but the piece that now is missing is connecting the um, administrators or um, uh, mentoring the new lighting designers so the, the new costume design absolutely but the fir- first step to that is really putting serious money behind it absolutely. and not expecting people to do it for free and the, like this is where where we get into the difference between what what we do here when it comes to say pro bono legal work and what they do in the United States. In the U.S., pro bono lawyers, known as volunteer lawyers for the arts, across the across the country, most states have mandatory pro bono. It is a part of the job and it is mandatory. And as a result, you have a managed system of pro bono with many opportunities. And it is in the interests of the profession to ensure that there are viable opportunities for their 
for the profession. And as a result, you have them supporting, like the, the, the profession, supporting these legal clinics financially because they want their, their junior lawyers to have good experiences. They want them to learn something. So they, they make sure they, they fund these legal clinics. And they're also independent so that there's the volunteer lawyers for the arts, there's the immigrant rights clinics, there's a whole host of clinics, but they're run by people with staff lawyers who are educated and professional, who can mentor the next generation of lawyers and law students. We have like, I, I can count on two hands the number of articling positions that we have for students in BC uh, wanting to work in the public interest. Well, and that's it's, a big... A tra- it is a travesty that we have a government today that does not see that a publicly funded legal clinic system, not funded by the Law Foundation, but funded by government, managed by government, directed by government, would save us money, would innovate. It's amazing what is happening in a few places in this province in innovation in the legal profession. We are at the cutting edge of changing the paradigm in which legal services happen. And we could do so much more with a small amount of support, but it has to be consistent and reliable and, you know, but well, I think I was just going to say that the, the, that whole system is not unlike what uh, years ago in the arts, of course, there used to be uh, funding that allowed you to have um, associate artists or uh, enough money to have interns. And it was part of the, the, the mandate, or as I understood it when I was growing up, that if you had a not-for-profit organization growing up in the arts, I should say. Um, If you were an organization, part of your expectation was to actually provide mentorship and and with that mentorship actually be able to provide funds to pay that mentor. Uh, I think as funding um, decreased and now it's coming back, a lot of those positions got shelved. So there was no way to develop that new administrator or that new um, uh, marketing person. And I think, I really think, and I had a long chat with the why not guys when they wrote here for push about their model. And, and we as arts organizations, I think do have a responsibility to try to find a way to continue to mentor and develop new voices, uh, who can take, take us forward and not, and they may even, even have great suggestions for how the model should work. Um, but without being able to take some of the cash uh, from what you might have been expecting to do a production with or expected to do a production with to do that, it's a bit challenging. So I think the the fact that these mentorships are going on and will continue to go on, I mean, I think mentorship is one of the best way to teach people how to be a part of this business or help them understand what this business is. Anyway, I could go on and on about that for a while, but... Um, I'm glad that uh, Why Not is continuing to do groundbreaking work. They're amazing. Their structure is amazing. Um, They're empowering individuals to do a lot of great work. And and I also would have to say, you know, you mentioned PUSH 
a while ago, I, 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 I wanted to get back to, I mean, their artistic director who's now gone from there. He was also someone who did that at theater center. He was an amazing, um, uh, mentor for people. He fought for change there. So it's, it's unfortunate that he's now left us, uh, and gone back to Toronto, which takes us back to real quick. And we're not going to spend too much time on it. Um, the fact that most arts organizations are run by not-for-profit societies and that are made up of boards of directors who are not experts in the field. They're volunteers. Um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that model. That's my last big question for the day. Yeah, well, I think the model has a lot of challenges attached to it. Um, I'm not as invested in, I, I don't know what other models there are, I'll be honest. So um, I think that the challenges that boards have are around the expectations that are laid at their feet in an absence of, again, training, an absence of and an absence of resources, right? Like, you know, there there is a, a very uh, an ongoing conversation about paying directors. You know, maybe if we paid directors, we'd get better results. I'm not convinced of that. Um, that being said, paying directors also opens up the reality that there'd be a lot more people interested and competing for these opportunities if their time was compensated. And in some cases, you know, the amount of time it takes to um, stay on top, be a working board, for example, not, not so much a governance board. Everybody talks about the Carver model and governance boards, and that's what you're all supposed to be doing. Well, not in the arts. They're all work. Most societies are working boards. I'm sorry. And they're running the organization, often on a shoestring with nothing. When so, you say that, though, I, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not sure that I would agree that most boards are working in terms of running the organization. They may be very aware of what's going on in the organization, and that's shared with them, and they have a responsibility, but I don't know that they're actually running the organizations. Oh, I think when you get into really small organizations with only one staff person who's part-time... The, the board end up doing front of the house. They end up. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you on that. And that very small, small hundred thousand dollar. But a lot of the funded uh, organizations. Oh, sure. yeah. um, there's 29,000 nonprofits in the province of PC. And I'm, a, I'm out of the lower mainland a lot. Yeah. And it's like I see a, even even in in well-funded organizations. Um, there can be real tension around what the role of the board is. Um, and, and they're not getting any, any support or training or resources. And, and, you know, when you're only paying $55,000 a year and you're in a small town, your options are going to be somewhat limited in terms of what who's going to apply for the job. 
of the executive director. So you're even then you're, it's, it's, I think a bit more complicated than just saying it's the model, you know, like I, I think the model could work. I don't actually think the, mo the model is necessarily the problem. It's the model in the context within which we've plopped it. That's the model in an environment where liability is going up, fear is going up, Re you know, um, boards, people, professionals want more support than they used to have to go onto boards. They want to know before they even agree that there's an ENO policy and or DNO policy, and that the DNO policy includes employment and human rights, which many don't because it costs more. Um, they want to know that, you know, they want to see audited financial statements and they won't volunteer to be on a board if they're not audited. Um, and that's, again, a huge disincentive for some organizations because there's a lot of groups that are not audited and they're small and, you know. Well, and for many years, I think in terms of the arts, it was basically if you had a budget of under a certain amount, you didn't have to get an audit. Um, but um, and getting an audit is a very expensive undertaking for a smaller organization. So, I, I mean, I, I do sometimes people do say to me that working boards in the in the service um, social services sector, there are a lot there's a lot more working boards that are actually working uh, with maybe one executive director. And I, I imagine that's probably true for a very small arts organization as well. But uh, as once you get or getting operating funding, there's an expectation expectation from the the funding bodies that actually, although you have a volunteer board, that you also have a staff, senior staff positions who actually run the organization, which that's, I think, where the conflict comes up is because if you have a senior staff who's a bench, senior staffs who are running organizations and the, they're meeting with boards of directors who don't actually understand what the organization does or how it has to do how it has to do it. That's I think where the big conflicts come and that's where yeah. people go the most. And then, you know, you also have boards that are um, created to fundraise. Yeah. Because there's a view out there. I mean fundraisers love this, you know, make it all about fundraising. Well, then you end up with these gigantic memberships which create more opportunities for member disputes. <laughs> And I'm the one who deals with the member disputes. So I'm like, uh, I say all the time to people who say to me, um, including one longtime arts administrator in the lower mainland, who was absolutely astounded when I said, you should not be giving your donors automatic membership in your society. She was like, what? Why? What? We've been doing this forever. And I'm like, yes. And this is a very bad idea. Because you, your donor, you don't want to give them the sense that they have some sort of power here. It's enough for you to have the board to deal with. You want to deal with a bunch of people who give you money who say, oh, no, we think we should be programming this. We want to see Mr. Barishnikov come to dance Victoria. You know, <laughs> I love giving this example. You know, it's like, oh, suddenly that's what you're dealing with. No, or it is true. You to, yeah, you know, do you want to be in Delta dealing with a hospice society that's been, you know, taken over by somebody who thinks that hospice services should be provided with a Christian lens. 
and it's yeah. actually had they've been ta- they've been taken they've been board. taken over and they've been taken over by a board that that, yeah. that has that view and, yes it's true and they've ended up in court they have spent tens of thousands of our dollars our dollars 1.3 million dollars from Fraser Health that's our money because this group of people have a particular interest and they think that they should supplant it. And I'm like, if I were the provincial government and they got did this, I would have just ripped the funding out. There's plenty of people out there who could run a hospice and who would. And they have canceled that funding, I think is what I understand. I don't know whether, uh-huh. when it happens. They did not. Oh, didn't? They, they, did. they, sus- they gave them they a sus- year grace period. Okay, I'm so like, it's suspended. If, if, if the previous erstwhile liberals could deal with PHS, it took them a hell of a long time to, you know, deal with PHS. I'm like, you know, I think that our expectations of Fraser Health are such, and they have removed funding from organizations in the past very quickly. So I'm a little surprised that they're giving them a year to effectively turn themselves into a Christian organization and force, you know, although the good thing about that is, is that it will give people in the Delta an opportunity to figure out how to create another society that will then be eligible for the funding from Fraser Health. But right. what a waste of everybody's time and money. And I'm a, I personally am an offend, offended by that because I believe in the ecumenical um, provision of healthcare services. And I will not be dictated to by a charismatic Catholic priest from Delta about what shouldn't shouldn't happen in terms of care. I think there are a lot of people <laughs> that would probably agree with you on that one, Martha. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I have a couple of questions that I'm going to ask you that are really quick. I think I already know the answer to this, but within the realm of the arts, if funding was not an issue, what would you do first? Start a legal clinic. <laughs> I thought Hire you might. A staff lawyer. <clears throat> across the country. Right? I would set up clinics across the country. I would fund them and I would create positions for articling students, for the next generation of lawyers who want to do this work, who are committed to supporting the sector. Absolutely. And can you give me a version of your Martha Rand's dramatic pause? How's that? That's a pretty good one. This is the only time I wish this was a a, 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 a visual interview because <laughs> everybody's faces are classic when I ask them that question. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for doing this. It was great to talk with you and learn more about what you're up to. And thank Thanks, you. Anna. Dramatic Pause is a podcast created by the Firehall Arts Centre in response to the closure of live performing arts centres across the world in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. This action has created the longest dramatic pause in recent history and has affected the livelihood of countless numbers of artists, creative workers, arts administrative and production staffs, and in turn has affected the lives of countless audience members and patrons who enjoy and believe strongly in the value of the live performing arts. Thank you for listening. And if you have any questions or feedback about today's podcast, please direct them to firehall at firehallartcenter.ca and we will get back to you as soon as possible. 
Dramatic Pause is made possible through the support of the Canada Council for the Arts, Department of Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, and the City of Vancouver, and Firehall's many individual donors and supporters. Thank you, and have a great day.